$5 to Donuts with your host, Steve Portigal. Welcome to this episode of Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where I talk to people who lead user research in their organization. I'm going to be teaching two public workshops about user research coordinated by Rosenfeld Media. The workshop is called Fundamentals of Interviewing Users and will be held May 20th in New York City and September 13th in San Francisco. You can find more details about the workshop and register at rosenfeldmedia.com slash public-workshops. I'll put the links in the show notes. You can send people from your team, or you can help me out by recommending the workshop to someone else. I also run user research training workshops for in-house teams, as well as work collaboratively with teams to run user research projects and bring new insights into the organizational culture and decision-making processes. I enjoy making this podcast, and I appreciate your support in hiring me and in recommending me that helps make it possible. I was in Amsterdam recently, and in preparation for the trip, I did a little bit of research about interesting dessert options that the city had to offer. It had been 10 years since my last visit, and I already knew I wanted to head back to original strobe waffles at the Albert Kite Market. But what else was there? Looking online, I found multiple enthusiastic posts about a chocolate cookie bakery. The reviews were breathless hyperbole, the best cookie you'll ever eat, and so on. So on our first day, jet lag notwithstanding, we walked over to Van Stapla Kokemakarai. We found it on a tiny street with a small line of people across the street and a cookie bouncer, maybe more of a butler, keeping people in place and letting people into the store in small groups. The store itself was also quite tiny, and it turns out they only sell one product, just this chocolate cookie filled with white chocolate. The main option we had is simply how many of this cookie we wanted to buy, with a secondary option around what you put the cookies in, a regular bag or box or a gift tin. The store itself was beautiful with a classic logo on the window and lots of wood and gilt and glass. Just what I pictured an old Dutch bakery would look like, the kind of place that has a time-tested recipe. We bought our cookies and then stood on the street corner to meet a local friend. Meanwhile, a passerby, an expat Brit, heard us speaking English and stopped to ask us about the cookies. Are they really that good to justify the lines of people that she's always seeing in this neighborhood? We thought they were pretty good, and we only waited in line a few minutes. We didn't tell her this, but it's hard for any cookie to live up to the best cookie ever hype that we found online. But it was a good cookie. Anyway, this woman went on to explain that the store was pretty new, like in the last couple of years. I was very surprised as the appearance of the space and the overall narrative led me to assume it was someplace that had been doing this one thing, selling only one kind of cookie for decades, if not longer. The cookie was still good, but this took away a small bit of the magic, this idea that we had finally connected with a long-standing best of Amsterdam experience. It got me thinking about authenticity, that slippery topic. This bakery created a seemingly authentic experience, implying a time-worn history, even though it's very new and only tourists shop there. The fact that the truth belied my assumptions suggests that it was somehow inauthentic, but I would still put them on the authentic side of the equation. That place looked and felt and tasted authentic, even though technically it isn't. I'm reminded of one of the most fun aspects of user research, trying to tease apart these underlying meanings, when even the words we use are inadequate to fully capture or communicate the nuance. Imagine trying to interview someone about their experience with this bakery and how you would go about unpacking their interpretation of the value proposition. I should note, I am available for this work, and I may be willing to accept payment in the form of desserts. 
Moving on from philosophical cookie musings, let's get to my interview with Kathleen. Kathleen Ajas leads the user research team at Shipstead Media in Sweden. All right, Kathleen, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Great to be here. What, uh, which, let's start with an introduction. Who are you? What, where do you work? What do you do there? Yeah. So um, I work uh, at Shipstead Media in Sweden, but I'm originally Dutch. I moved to Sweden around eight years ago, and before that I also moved around quite a bit, so I've been here and there. And I lead the user research team at Shipstead. We are nine people all together right now. Nine. Uh, nine researchers. And uh, yeah, I manage the team. I make sure that we advance the research practice, that the research maturity of the organization kind of advances. And um, for those who don't know Shipstead Media, which is basically the whole world, we are a media company based in Scandinavia, and uh, it consists of uh, it's a conglomerate of all kinds of online newspapers, on and offline newspapers, media houses, basically. Uh, and they are the biggest ones in Norway and Sweden, eight altogether, but also some like regional coastal newspapers and so on. So it's a mix of both national and regional newspapers, as well as other niche products that we have. That are not news. Papers. Yeah. Uh, so in total, we work with around 34 product teams. So my team serves many, many different kinds of product teams. Some of them are related to these newspapers, uh, but others are like Scandinavian Weight Watchers and uh, price comparison sites and so on. That are all Tech part sites. of this media conglomerate. Yeah. And Shipstead consists of both media and marketplaces. So it started out as a Scandinavian company, I think. 200 years ago almost, it's old, well-established, but it also has marketplaces all over the world. So in France and in, in Spain and in South America even. Yeah. What's a marketplace in this context? Oh, it's uh, online selling and reselling of used goods. And these are, are these all different brands? This is not, there's not a global international marketplace brand. No, no. So this is all, all kind of local brands, yeah. local marketplaces or like national marketplaces in these different countries, but they're all hosted by Shipstead. Okay. Yeah. And yeah, what's, this is a broad question, I guess, what's the mix of things that were acquired? How does, the, how does mm -hmm. this media conglomerate come to have such a, a more diverse portfolio like you're describing? <laughs> I have no idea, to be honest. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think it just... You know, as a media house, it's in their DNA to experiment and to be first and to be fast. And I actually kind of act agile. So when it comes to kind of new products or new opportunities, they act fast and they experiment and they, yeah, widen their horizons and do it in a very sustainable way, like focus on growth and, and kind of maturing products. Yeah. Have you, uh, during your time there, have you seen them move into a new, not product category, but sort of geographic region, like a, a part of the world where they don't have any, didn't have any business before? Yeah. So they do this all the time, especially in the marketplaces, but now also with kind of personal finance and, and uh, borrowing money services and so on. Uh, so yeah, they're expanding and looking at new regions all the time. Yeah. So in those examples, that's businesses that they're already in, and then how can we do that in another yeah. territory, 
Okay. How can we take this to a neighboring country? Uh, how can we expand this in a different region? Uh, we see opportunities somewhere else. What can we do? Right. I'm starting to see a little why there's so many different product teams that you're working with and they're just... Yeah, but this is only, like, I'm only on the media side. I'm sorry. I okay. should be really clear about that. All the marketplaces stuff, I'm, I'm not in that. Oh. No. You, my colleagues are. Is there, they, do you have, uh, like, peers who do research in that part of the business as well? Yeah. So, so their researchers, my team is based in Oslo and Stockholm, but there's also research based in London and Paris, Barcelona, um, South America. So all together, I think in ships that wide, there are around 25 to 30 researchers all together. So you're involved in the media side. I'm just mm-hmm. wondering sort of how many clusters yeah. are there? If media is one. And marketplaces is the other. Okay. They're like the big two clusters. Okay. Yeah. So you're nine and there, I'm doing math now in my head. So that's about <laughs> 16 people probably in the marketplace yeah. side of it. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a community of researchers and we make an effort to see each other every year, which is good. So even though the things you're working on are quite different, different industries, different businesses, there's still a sense of trying to keep connection and yeah. yeah what do what's what are you trying to accomplish by bringing these different researchers together? Yeah, I think since user research is not a new kind of field, but is ever evolving, and it's really important for us to make sure that we evolve as user researchers, and you do this in dialogue. Like this is why we attend conferences, and this is why you you know explore new methods and new things, and you want to share these things, of course. So I think that's why it's important that we meet. Uh, and talk about these things face to face because from that kind of dialogue you, you get a very different experience than just seeing a presentation or you know talking with each other online uh, so yeah to have a community uh, to have your peers to have others that you know give feedback on your work and make you reflect on what you're doing and what's going well and what maybe isn't going that well I think is really crucial to kind of advance your practice and to become more mature in your research and in the organization you're in. What can you do? How are those conversations different when you're in person than through all of our collaboration platforms that we work in? Yeah, I think as always, you know, it's not just, just you know, meeting and having an agenda and, and talking about certain things. It's also the discussions that you have during breakfast, if you're staying at the same hotel or after work while you're having a drink, uh, as well as also what we hosted during our last meetup. We met in Budapest, um, where we also did a visit. We visited another company uh, and talked with their user research team and talked a bit about, okay, what are you struggling with? What are we struggling struggling with and and then you start asking each other questions and you get these really brilliant discussions going so one of the questions there was someone asked like okay when it comes to really keeping track of you know all the research and all the learnings if you have turned over in an organization how how do you do that like what is a good database or platform to store your insights and we're like oh darn we have the same issue we want <laughs> we were looking for a solution as well yeah. and basically everyone in the industry is looking for a good solution to do this over time but uh, if anyone knows please let me know <laughs> reach out to me I'm happy to hear yeah so let's maybe switch topics back. Let's mm-hmm. go back to maybe just setting some of the, the more context. Uh, how long have you been in this role? So I have, I came to Shipstead around four years ago, I think. And I uh, came in as a consultant first. 
uh, in a very kind of different, uh, in one of those niche products. I worked with Lifestyle, uh, which was like online fashion and interior decoration. Really strange, uh, but fun to work with. And then after doing that for almost a year, my manager at that point said, okay, we would like to have you on board. Would you, you know, would you consider becoming permanent employee here? And I said, ah, oh, only if we can make sure that this is a pure, like a research role. Before I would always, as a consultant, I would kind of be, often be hired as a UX designer. You know, it's like, like the industry in Scandinavia was not that ready for user research as a profession or expertise. Often when I would say like, you know, six, seven years ago, I would say like, oh, do user research people are like, but what? So now, you know, you know, finding out about user needs and really tailoring the product to meet their needs. And they're like, okay, but that's what you do at the end, right? So what, what else? <laughs> we need someone at the beginning. And then you have to, you know, you really have to explain, well, actually, it's at the beginning where you start and where you need to really understand what you're doing and who you're doing it for. Um, so often we'll be, you know, hired as a UX designer. I have to wing the design part most of the time, but do all the fundamental research kind of early on. So I said, okay, I was one of the first reuser researchers in ships that I said, okay, you need to, you know, make this a, a role and it needs to have, you know, I see that all the teams need to be doing more user research. So I want to coach them and train them and make sure that we become more mature in this. So that's how it kind of started. And yeah, I've been changing my role about every year. So from research lead, uh, working by myself, then I got a, like a small team to work with of two other researchers. And then last year, we finally kind of combined all the different researchers that were in media, but were all working with their own separate kind of product into one kind of uh, one team that works more independent of the different product teams and works more like, okay, where are we needed? Where can we add most value? Where can we add most impact? And so was there a, a change in title for you when that happened? Yeah, so that's when I became head of research. Okay. And I got the, yeah, then eight, now nine people team up and running. Right, I'm, I'm curious about, I don't know if it's a fair question for you, but at what point do you think organizations go from, like there's some evolution here of we're yeah. doing research, hmm. but we have people that, have the title of researcher to now we have someone who's responsible, who's a leader. Yeah. Like that's, I think, sort of the evolution that you described. But yeah, like, what exactly. is that point? I don't know. Is there a point at which that becomes clear that we're ready or it's time for leadership in research as opposed to sort of the, just the function being staffed? Yeah. Um, I think it depends a lot from organization to organization. And I think it depends a lot on, you know, who is there. Like, like in your organizational leadership, you need to have those people who, who want to promote it, who see the value and really want to kind of make sure that research becomes leading in so many ways. And one way to get there is to really show your impact again and again and again and do a lot of that, you know, lobbying and, and, and showcasing and communicating. Um, another thing can be that, you know, uh, one of the senior VPs or someone who comes in has, has that experience from another company company and goes like, okay, I see, you know, where we're struggling, what we need is professional kind of user research. Let's bring those people in or get promote people into those roles and structure it more. So it can be bottom up or top down. Yeah. It can go both ways. Uh, I think in our case, it was more bottom up. 
right? You hear stories about people were brought in with the intention of yeah. building up a function capability. Yeah. Like build you said. a team, build right. a function, change the organization. I never had that mandate to begin with. I created you, it. You didn't have the mandate, but it's um, t- it sounds like you had that trajectory. I mean, in the conversations yeah. you had about mm. taking a full time job versus mm. being a consultant, sounds like I'm inferring some of from some of what you said that you're looking towards more robust establishment of research that you would want to, to champion yeah. and drive. Definitely, yeah. definitely. I think it's so important because uh, user research, you know, for us as a function, as a role in organization, we're there to make sure that everyone in the product teams makes better informed decisions, right? Uh, we do a lot of gut feeling and looking at competitors and just coming up with stuff. We need to make those decisions more robust and we need better insights. So that's what we're doing. And for that to, you know, really get to a professional level and a good level, you need to have it embedded in an organization and have it at decision-making levels. So that's always been, like, I see, I see where it's needed and I try yeah. to make sure it gets there. Yeah. And so part of the evolution that you were describing was there were individual researchers working on different product teams. Yeah. Um, and then you reorganize so that you're all working together and then putting research, you're looking for where it's needed and then putting research where it's needed. Yeah. So, and I, I, I find this, and I'm sure maybe you do as well, this is like a, this is a hot topic. Are researchers embedded or are researchers centralized <laughs> are the terms I hear used most often. Yeah. So we're in a matrix organization and then you're a bit of both. So every product has, you know, UX designers, product managers, developers, and then you have all the different brands uh, across the other side of the matrix. And then, yeah, we feed research into each of these kind of product teams wherever it's needed. So you're, you're half embedded and half mm. not. Uh, and, you know, ideally, of course, it'd be wonderful if I had 34 researchers, then yeah, everyone could be embedded. But I don't see anyone granting me that kind of capacity anytime soon. Right, at least 34, right? Because maybe <laughs> yeah. the, maybe there's more work for more than one researcher in that team. Definitely. Let's go for 40 or 50. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I would like to, you know, pose would... that question to the CEO or CTO, whoever yeah. is making the decisions these days. I'm not getting that. At all, that. no, yeah. and I'm not sure if it were actually if we would do a better job at that scale because now what you see is when you work with multiple product teams is that they have similar challenges, similar issues, similar audience, so you have more of that dialogue going on between the product teams, and you're facilitating that as a researcher because you have an overview of all the different issues and the similar issues that they're trying to deal with. So I think in that sense, yeah, you know, we're usually understaffed as always, and there's way more requests than there are people in my team, for sure. At the same time, it makes you make really tough decisions on, okay, where can we add most value? Where do we add most? And But also, you know, you're spread thin, so you need to make sure that teams do their own research, but you support them doing it. And actually, I think they do, I think the outcomes are used more and better if teams do it themselves, with your help, obviously. But yeah. 
Do you have a theory as to why? Well, it's all about that kind of first-hand experience. You know, if you talk with your audience or your users directly, you, you know, you've shaken their hands, you've seen what they struggle with, you know what's happening to them, and you will use that in your everyday decision-making for the product. And also, you know, you can do a study on, for example, working on news consumption patterns, like how often during the day do you access online news and what, which sources do you look at, for example. But during those conversations, maybe really interesting things are coming up about subscription models or when you are willing to pay for news or not. And if the product owner or the designer has those conversations themselves with users, then in the next project that comes up where they're actively looking at subscription models or changing those, they will have that knowledge kind of in their back pocket and take that up again. Whereas, you know, if I write a report... Or, or share information about news consumption, that information about subscriptions will not be in there. Like, that's in my mind. So if I'm, you know, the expert who knows everything and has all the conversations and all the interviews and, and gets all the raw data and starts analyzing that and I'm the only one doing it, then I am the expert of everything. But I can't be there for their everyday decision making or their backlog grooming or their, you know, deciding on the next step or their product strategy. So the more they do themselves, the more all those insights will feed into their everyday work. So can I try reflecting back? So yeah. a, a team that does its own research, one, has the benefit of direct experience, hmm. and two, has the, the, the things that seem extraneous to your initial question, these sort of weak signals, these other bits and pieces yeah. that you hear, that, that rests with them where they might, they're more likely to reuse it in the future when it comes up. Yeah, Definitely. Okay. Definitely. And then you do have the, you know, on the, on the flip side, there's the challenge of synthesis, data analysis, you know, that's quite, that can be quite advanced. And of course, not everyone has the capacity uh, to do so, uh, both in time as well as mentally. So, so it's a fine balance between, you know, grooming and training them to do their own things while still keeping, you know, an eye on it and helping them in the places and spaces where they struggle. So something like synthesis, which is advanced, what do you do to help a, a team that that's not there? Yeah, so I, I would sit in on the, on those sessions with them. So, so for example, I myself support two product teams now, and we've been doing this for around a year and a half. So they're pretty good at, you know, writing their own kind of discussion guides, doing their own interviews and, and so on. But I noticed like, okay, when it comes to the analysis part, they're still, you know, the findings are still kind of superficial. So I would just, you know, try and sit in on those sessions. So, or listen in to one or two of the interviews and sit in on the session, look through the raw data with them and really start digging. And then, you know, when people jump to conclusions too quick, you say like, okay, where did you get that? It's like, oh, the fear of missing out, it's here and there. It's like, well, actually, no one ever said that. There's something... You know, this is a term we use a lot uh, when it comes to filter bubbles and, and so on. I don't think I've heard any users say that in interviews and then make them dig to find the evidence. And they go, like, oh, no, I jumped too quick there. Like, okay, well, let's step back then and look again at what we did find. So, yeah, but it is different for every team, really, what they need and where they're at. And, and some are at that basic level of, okay, what do I ask and how do I ask it? And others are a bit more advanced. So what's your decision-making process in allocating your own resources yeah. know, across these different teams where maybe 
a researcher in your group is going to do the research or is going to support this other team doing the research themselves? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you plan all that? Well, it's really hard. And I've actually lately have been, there have been, I wouldn't say conflicts, but there are, you know, different teams are fighting with each other for who has access to which resource, which of course is a terrible situation to be in. But we do it in a way where you know, we're nine people now and we make sure that each researcher has multiple product teams that they focus on, that they're the first point of contact for. So all the requests and so on come in for them and they follow the product team and their kind of research roadmap and what they're doing. And then when new requests come in, it comes through me and then I'll have to just, yeah, interact with the team and ask, okay, who has space? Do we think this is more important than something else? Uh, do we need to prioritize this? And then we prioritize based on several things. So first it is like, where do we have most impact? Like where do we think we can generate the most important insights? that are really needed for a team, but also where are we at ourselves in our professional, personal development and what kind of opportunities come with this research assignment or challenge that will help you know, this or that person in our team grow personally. Can you give a generic example of what that would be like? Yeah, so, so for example, we had an assignment coming up and we thought like, okay, well, looking at it, we thought, okay, this kind of challenge requires a diary study. And there was someone on a team who really wanted to do a diary study, had never done it before, uh, and wanted to kind of try out that as a method. Then we thought, okay, well, this is a great opportunity for you to work this out and experiment with this. So then we put that person on to that assignment. So it's a big mix of different things, really. Like, where can we have most impact, but where can we also learn and new things and, and try and challenge ourselves and grow as a, both as a team and as well as research professionals? If you don't have resources to, for the request that comes in, hmm. uh, I'm sure there's, I guess there's a couple of things that could happen. That research could just not happen or it could be done by the team or I don't know what, maybe I should put it as a question or what, if what you happens? can't handle something, what, what happens to it? I don't think it's done. Mm. It doesn't get done. Or or we hire external agencies to do it, which I think often is the worst thing to do. Like, I think, and this is also why I'm happy that we kind of came together as a research team, because I think around two years ago, it was like every individual researcher would be stuck doing a lot of tactical validation or kind of research and be really busy with that kind of everyday uh, work really trying to make sure that product teams, you know, look more at these kinds of insights and validate whatever they push out. And at the same time, we were thinking like, okay, we need this really big strategic research done on the whole, you know, what is the ecosystem in Scandinavia for both news consumption as well as online marketplaces and selling and reselling of used goods. And then we, we hired this agency to do this for us and spent loads of money on it. And then so all the really challenging, really big research questions are done by an external agency that deliver a report, but then all the super useful insights and mm. extra information kind of, you know, they stick there. They don't really reach us or at least not into the organization. We can't do it ourselves because we're too busy. Yes. That's, of course, a terrible place to be in. It sounds analogous to when product team does research versus when the research team does it for them. Yeah. Okay, so... Yeah. I mean, so it's even one step further removed. Because yeah, now, now it's not in the organization It's not even at all. in the organization. Yeah. So um, some consultants know a lot about media consumption uh, and the whole ecosystem in Scandinavia. Right. Good for them. They got paid to do that as well. 
Yeah. Uh, so as someone that works as a consultant, I'm, I'm definitely sensitive to when you, if you, when you hear that your way of working is the worst possible option and like it definitely makes my ears perk up. Um, I hope I didn't offend you. No, I don't offend it. I mean, I don't, it seems to me in my experiences that the, the mitigation for that is to, is to have it be a collaboration, uh, which is a different way. Like you, I think you were even talking about this when the way that you're supporting your internal clients versus kind of doing it for them. I think for consultants, this is my opinion and my experience, like it's, yeah, to go take the research, to go take the tasks, execute it and report back on it is not, as a consultant, that's not very fun. It's not very rewarding. I don't think it's very effective, but I'm interested in sort of finding collaborative models. Again, just kind of like sometimes with your teams, you're you're coaching them, but they're handling it. And sometimes you're, you know, in there doing the research with them. I think these kind of hybrid, they're more blurry kinds of collaborations yeah, because I don't want to know everything about some topic, and then that's, no, that, that no. doesn't suit my objectives. No. It doesn't suit my clients' objectives. No, exactly. But that's why you, you, as a consultant, need to have a really thorough discussion about that at the start, right? Like, how can we make sure that these findings and insights kind of land in the organization and are usable by everyone, yep. rather than just it just being a deliverable that could then kind of goes from, you know, yeah. one's inbox to another inbox, and then, you at, know, four it, weeks it, later, it's yeah. forgotten or in some kind of drive somewhere. Right. Your point earlier about, you know, trying to help them have some experience where something sticks with them. Hmm. Like that's definitely the model of my own business. And I think as researchers, we're capable of facilitating that experience in a way that, I mean, this is all the, what you're talking about, setting yeah. up these teams to be successful. Hmm. So how do you help them have those experiences? That sounds like that's what you've been working on a lot. Yeah, so definitely. I think uh, I think we agree more than we disagree. but We do, we do. Yeah. Let's see if we can loop hmm. back in something you mentioned before. Hmm. So you were talking about one of the advantages of this kind of matrix model is that um, researchers have have experience across different products, different product teams, and they're able to bring something that they've learned into a different context. Yeah, exactly. And also, um, I think our we try to make sure that our product teams do kind of continuous research or rolling research, whatever you want to call it, so that they, they bring in uh, their end users every month, at least every four weeks or so. And then, you know, you have a batch of five, six people coming in every month for all these different product teams. But it, so it adds up to a lot of people in the end. And, you know, over time, it adds up to talking to very many people across time. So we try to make sure that they have some kind of fundamental questions that they ask everyone. So across these different product teams that we all ask about, you know, media consumption habits, just to really understand, okay, you know, you are reading Svenska Dagbladet, the Swedish uh, national newspaper, but which other sources do you have for your information? And then it might turn out that, well, actually, I'm also daily visiting Aftonbladet, which is the other big national newspaper that we also own. Uh, and, you know, how do these two complement each other to ask about, you know, their, which other products are you using? How does it complement each other? Um, are the competitors there? So these are the kind of questions that every product team asks mm. and that we can also kind of look in across or over time. Do we see things changing or do we see like across the board to kind of see overlap or learn things that other product teams should know about? Uh, while talking with Svenska Dagblad readers, what do we learn about Aftonbladet at the same time? Just yesterday, oh. someone was asking me about their organization and describing what they, they they put it as very siloed research, and they were feeling frustrated as a researcher. They were a designer who was doing a lot of research. They were seeing things that they knew could apply elsewhere, and they didn't yeah. know what to do with them. 
and you're kind of describing a sort of a proactive structure for that, that, that there's some things that are going to come up and you're going to intentionally ask in a lot of different research. Yeah. And then I guess this is the, would be the challenge for this other group. Then you have to put the time in to, to, to say, well, what does that tell us? Yeah, exactly. Um, but and I really like the not idea. Not just keep it on the shelf, but actually use it. Yeah. And I think there we still have a way to go, to be honest. Like we, we try to make sure these things are in place, but to actively, you know, spend time on digging through it and making sure it's useful or like like I think we can take right. extra steps there. Yeah. Right. It, at, at one level, it's there if you need it to go look at it. But, yeah. but to be proactive, you would have to go and say, well, what are we learning? Yeah. What did we learn this quarter? What did we learn this half year? If we compile yeah. all that data. So. One thing I've heard people talk about is, um, you know, you're describing managing these different requests that are coming in and prioritizing them based on these different criteria. You know, I've heard people talk about one thing they can do with those requests is say, we already have that information. Like yeah. recycling data or recycling insights as opposed to re redoing the research. Yeah, exactly. So often it is also about, you know, seeing like, okay, you want to have information about, you know, willingness to pay for online use and so on. We know from your counterparts in Norway that, you know, they've done this in this study. Have a look at that and see if you can reuse some of those insights or if you think they apply to you or if you can build on that. So there's a lot of that kind of kind of cross-functional. But then still, you know, it becomes, I've been there for four years now, so I've been, you know, I've seen and heard heard quite many things, but then still wave, you know, what is the one central database or place where you will know that, you know, that information is there, even if people have left or what if I leave, like, where does all that knowledge go? Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a theme we think we keep coming back to mm -hmm. sort of where does knowledge go and we're yeah. right. The, the external consultant or, or you delivering the mm -hmm. report, uh, the, the kind of matrix way of working for the team. And then where does that live? It's a, it seems like this is a, Really significant challenge, as you said. The yeah. the folks that you met with in Budapest that was also an issue for them. Yeah, I, I, I think I think it's an issue a lot of people struggle with, like like across everything. And then then yeah, you know, do you need an organizational wiki or database or I don't know? Do you have the answer? Have you heard? The solution. The, I had a really interesting conversation with someone and about this, and what she said to me was, "Yes, you can have the infrastructure, whatever mm -hmm. database tool you want, but uh, they hired basically like a reference librarian role. Yeah, you know that that the in her experience uh, that it would fail unless you staffed staffed it. That this is a job yeah. and it takes time and it takes effort, okay. um, so that you." You have and someone and is it. it worth it? Because it's, what is the shelf life of each insight or thing over time? You know, things are changing rapidly. Yeah, that, I mean, that sometimes I, I wonder a bit about that. Like, you know, things that happened four or five years ago are they still relevant for us now? Uh, is that insight still valid, or have things changed? That's well, interesting for a two hundred year old company. Like, yeah, right. It, <laughs> yeah. right some things, some things clearly are changing very rapidly mm. around us. But yeah, what are the fundamental things that uh, I don't know? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how you even kind of assess that. Yeah, but if you think about, you know, reading news online, it's something that's, you know, for many of us is an everyday habit now. But five or ten years ago, right. it wasn't, was it? Uh, so, But the role, the, the role of news in being a citizen, yeah. I mean, has that yeah. changed? No, no, no. And that's also what's, you know, so interesting about working in this field. Uh, when I when I graduated, I wanted to be a journalist, actually, because I thought it was really exciting and really such an important thing, you know, free and independent journalism is such an important thing in society. And now, you know, all these years later, I get 
to work with journalism. So I'm almost there, uh, just in a different kind of capacity. Um, yeah, so that's quite good. Right. Is there a sense uh, among the team that you are, I mean, do you all identify as working in the, the news industry? Yeah. Yeah, I think that that mission that Shipstead has about really providing free and independent journalism is really important for most of us. You know, we, yeah, people really align along that mission. I think there's something about the work of research. You know, as someone who's worked as a consultant, you get into just a, a wide variety of industries and topic areas. And, you know, I feel like among researchers, that's that's a bonus, like, yeah, you know, yeah. I, sometimes I've had this conversation with people when they approach me about some research problem they have and, you know, exploring if there's a possibility to collaborate. They're describing something they're doing and they say, is this interesting to you? And I just I have to kind of laugh because... It's all interesting, isn't it? It's all interesting, yeah, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, but you're describing maybe the opposite. And obviously there's thousands of problems even within the space that you're in. But, um, you know, I guess it's breadth versus depth that you are, you're in an industry and you're sort of focused focus on commitment to that mission. Hmm. Whereas if you're sort of a journeyman researcher like myself, you move across very different kinds of things. Yeah. And th- no, that in uh, itself yeah. is rewarding, but I don't have the I don't have yeah. the, the mission thing that you have. No, but I've, I've been there as well. I've also worked as a consultant and, you know, I've worked with offshore engineers uh, that, you know, lay high voltage cables across the North Sea and so on. And like, you know, who would have thought, you know, when I came out to Sweden that I would be working on this factory site with a yellow helmet on my head and, and looking at, you know, what these engineers are coming up with and what they're doing and so on. But that's the amazing thing, isn't it? You get to really explore things you didn't know about were happening and, and, and what they're like and get to ask all the dumb questions and to really get a good understanding. But I've, after doing that for, I think I did it for four or five years, I also at some point felt like, yeah, often you are asked to be there at the end or things have failed or things are not going well. How interesting would it be to be there, you know, along the way? And like, like I said, yeah, really helping teams be better informed and make better decisions. Uh, for that, you need to stick around for a while. And uh, that's also super interesting right now. Yeah. So as you're talking about a little bit about some of the some of the career elements of your career path, can you maybe step back even further and talk a little about, you know, what, what you pursued in education when you were thinking about journalism yeah. and, and then what where you ended up in the work world and sort of what led you to, to where you are now? Yeah, good one. Um, I studied, well, first, I managed to study psychology for about three or four months when, <laughs> when I came out of high school because I was so interested in people and I thought, oh, I need to, you know, that will help me understand the world and people better. And I got super frustrated within no time and I thought that the course in statistics was more interesting interesting than the introduction to psychology. So I noticed very quickly, like, okay, if, uh, if statistics is more interesting than actually the introduction to the thing that I'm supposed to study for the next four or five years, then I'm in the wrong place. Uh, so then I switched to political science. Uh, so I have a master's degree in political science which has really given me a really good fundamental basis in in research methods and skills, both the quantitative as well as the qualitative side of things, uh, which I think is really great uh, now in hindsight, 
because, you know, after studying for several years, I started hating statistics after a while as well. But, but I'm happy I did it because it's given me good insights into mixed methods and how you need to combine both qualitative, quantitative data to really, yeah, validate your own findings as well as, as make your findings kind of an insight stronger and have more impact, uh, which is something that, you know, we really need to do as user researchers because we're still being questioned about okay why did you only talk to five people i had that the other day like why only and i was like oh is these questions are they still coming up mm-hmm. interesting um so i studied political science and after that i i worked in research like just academic research as well as in policy research for a municipality but i noticed that i was more interested in yeah technology and what it does with people and how people use it and how it enables people so after a while um also moving around from holland to australia and coming back again i managed to find a job in a library for the blind uh, where we were producing materials for visually impaired people. And there we spent, I was a product manager, a project manager for a while. And I noticed that we were building things and making things. I was in, in the research and development department. And we're spending lots of money, lots of our time on things that were actually not really helping visually impaired people at all. Because we were stuck kind of in thinking in old ways or thinking that, you know, we know what visually impaired people need, whereas, you know, we don't. Don't, we didn't know anything, really. We're just doing it out of goodwill, thinking they were helping, but actually, you know, things change. So that's where I started to really focus on user research and, and, and yeah, looking at how do we develop these products? How do we develop an online library for visually impaired people? Uh, and what do they need in their everyday lives to access things online? Um, what devices do they use? How do they do things? So that's when I really start to focus was, on user research. And was were you thinking of it with that label, user research at that point? No, not at all. Not at all. And I think in the, in the US, I think user research was more well established than it was in Europe. And it wasn't until I think six or seven years ago, I was at a conference in the US where actually someone asked someone, so what you do and said oh I'm a user researcher at Google user research that's what I'm doing we talked about what her job was and what she was doing like that's exactly what I'm doing so now I had a title for it and actually you know good understanding of what what it was and what you could call it Mm. but then no one else in the industry got that yet right yeah so it's a bit it's a bit behind in some ways I think so what what happened after the this working on library for the blind yeah so after that um I managed a team for a while to really become more user-centered I did it for three years almost and then yeah we moved to Sweden from Holland to Sweden and there I had to reinvent myself and who I was and what I was doing uh and then I started consulting so I started consulting and working with yeah UX user research in the different industries so I've done everything like I said from offshore engineers to 3D kitchen modeling uh, comparison um yeah I've done an interesting study on uh, heating system heating pumps and how to <laughs> explore interfaces for that this is really fun and weird assignments uh, and ended up doing an assignment for ships that and st- stuck around because they're interesting to work with. You know, your your whole journey is, I mean, I love that you were doing research and didn't know that it was called that, hmm. that you had sort of sort of found your way to it without, without the benefit of that label or that identity or some of the professional community stuff. And it just makes me think about, I mean, because I, I think your example is common 
you know, if you look sort of over trajectories over time, and, you know, I, I think you're right, geographically it's different, you know, U.S. Yep. versus Europe versus other parts of the world. There was a time where anyone who was in user research was there through an indirect, I don't even want to say non-traditional because there was no alternative, but everyone was there through mostly somewhat kind of indirect path. Yeah. And as time moves on and the research industry grows, there are people who identified that early on, chose an educational path that yeah. would sort of prepare them for that. You can Gradu- study it nowadays. You can yeah. study it, right, right. <laughs> Very interesting. Right, whereas we remember when people would say, what is that? That's not a yeah. thing. Um, yeah, I don't know. So what are the, as time moves on and we have a mix of people that have studied it hmm. versus people who have, I don't know, this is a little pretentious, but been called to it because we identified it. Yeah. I guess you can study it and be called to it, but someone like me did not, I was not trained. I was, you know, found my way like you did. Yeah. Um, yeah. What does it mean for the practice kind of collectively as we have this mix and as that mix changes, hmm. right? I'm going to guess more people are being trained in it now. Yeah. The, 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 the mix represent, includes more people who studied than it did in the past. That's a hypothesis. Yeah. I think it does. And at the same time, I don't think it should. And I think, you know, the richness of our practice, research practice, actually comes from people with different backgrounds and different kind of previous experience. So that's also what I look for in, in my team. Like everyone comes from a different background. And when I recruit for my team, then I also actively seek people that come from something else. Yeah, different nationality, different um, different professional background, different uh, academic background, different phase in life from juniors, really junior. I just hired someone straight out of, you know, psychology she studied um, to, to more senior, have been around for a while and have all that expertise from just industry or academically. And I think that's how you as a team and as a person can grow most through that mix. Uh, and that's how we can do our best work. Uh, I would not want to have a team of nine trained user researchers. Why? Best quality comes from diversity quite often. That's been proven time and time again. Like the, from the more different angles you can look at a problem, that's the better your answer or solution will be. And I think that that's the same for a user research team. You need, you know, qualitative research experts, you need quant research experts, you need people who are, you know, more experienced in design so that they can come with really good recommendations on how to solve problems. You need people who have, you know, yeah, different. So my team as well, like some, there's some anthropologists, psychologists, someone who comes from product design, like physical product design, someone from digital product design, human computer interaction, UX, a bit of, you know, we're a bit of everything. And we actively want it to be the more diversity, the better, the more we can learn from each other and the better we will get at what we're doing. Yeah. Do you think there's any connection between, you know, you mentioned before that people are still asking the sample size question. Yeah. Is there any question between that as kind of how well research is understood or not understood? Hmm. And because, you know, your diversity of thought, your diversity of, of educational background is, um, you know, is, is not... 
I don't think that's an unusual way of articulating it. And I'm with you that that's a strength. But I wonder, you know, a practice that is made up of this kind of a conglomeration of different types of thoughts and educational background, are we creating challenges for ourselves and being understood by others because we have that? I mean, diversity, is, I, I agree, diversity is a good thing, but there's sort of um, almost like a ragtag aspect of it. Like, oh, we've got a psychologist and a product designer and someone from political science. Like, mm-hmm. there's, uh, it could be misconstrued as sort of a lack of intentionality or standardization. You know, like the more well-established it is uh, through education and in like product development processes, the more standardization there is, the easier it will be to get, you know, recognitions for what you're doing. At the same time, if you really deliver high quality insights and really can also show the impact of, you know, these are the insights, this is what we're learning, this is what the product team is also changing based on that, and this is how it's changing our revenue, this is how it's changing our product, this is how it's really improving the user experience, then, you know, it's in that proof and in showcasing and also labeling it, naming it, like we got here through this and this insight, and this is how we managed to change things around, and people can also get there. But um, that under that level of understanding and acceptance of, we talked to six people and we know more now than we know from just staring at our belly buttons and looking in-house and <laughs> to ourselves or our competitors, yeah. I mean, what I hear mm-hmm. you saying is that, you know, the, the thing that helps advance the field is the work, the work yeah. being good, the work being relevant and kind of advocating for the work and, you know, my my thing about, well, what kind of backgrounds do people have and so on is that's probably not as relevant as no, the thing that we're here to no. do that people care about. That's what yeah. they care about. At the same time, of course, it is, you know, tremendously helpful that, you know, large companies have really professional research teams and that they actively do this and that there is education and training in this and, and that, you know, that level of making it more professional or standard that helps us, of course, as well. Because then yeah. I can also say, you know what, and The Guardian are doing it this way. We could be doing something similar or, you know, they have learned this and this. We should be looking at that as well. So, yeah, it goes both ways. Yeah. Hmm. So you've talked about... Um you talked about just the, you know, the diverse team where people have exposure to just different modes of thought, different kind of uh, different backgrounds. And then you gave that example where you might choose how to prioritize a program among many that you're being asked to do so that someone on the team, you know, you, you mentioned the diary study example. Yeah. Um, I guess so just more broadly, how do you think about, you know, the team where they are at now and and developing them and kind of helping Helping create uh, create the conditions that can support professional mm. development within within your team. Yeah, so I think you know part of being what's so good about being part of a team is that you have you know people with different kinds of expertise that you can learn from and that will help you kind of grow as a research professional. Uh, and I think it's really important. There's a high demand for user researchers, so they're being poached like left, right, and center if you get the opportunity. Um, LinkedIn requests galore if you have user research in your title, someone, some recruiter will at some point go like, hey, should we be talking with you? So to counter that, you need to make sure that, you know, people are challenged in everyday work and that they feel that they're growing and that they're developing and they get to do really challenging things. Um, And we in our team, we're looking at that from kind of, you know, we have a sparring system where every month we team up with a different person in the team and every week you spend at least an hour sparring on, you know, what am I doing? How's it going? What are my challenges right now? Um, can you give me feedback on this script or this method or this approach? 
set up, um, you you name it, it's up to them themselves. Uh, but just to make sure that, you know, you get active input from not just, you know, in the team setting, but also one-on-one to help you kind of get different inspiration, different feedback uh, all the time. And as well as besides the sparring, making sure that people get to do really challenging assignments and, and that we put them on kind of the research and that not just, you know, whoever, which product team yells the hardest gets to put a researcher and get to say what they have to do, but to make sure that, you know, we focus on the things so that we can have high impact and really mean something for the organization as well as the product team, as well as for the researcher themselves. Um, so I think there we're seeing, you know, from compared to a year ago when they were all, you know, everyone's in their own product, in their own silo, doing their own thing. We're seeing lots of benefit from that now. Being a central team, of course, can be challenging because you're getting more requests on what you can do. But at the same time, you get to really learn from each other and learn from your peers and 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 develop uh, yourself as your own practice quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's really, yeah, what's super inspiring about being a research team or having that. And I can recommend to everyone who is like a research team of one, this is many of us around that, to try and find your peers and try and find a research community around you. Uh, and it can be in different organization or it can be even online or it doesn't matter. Try and find people that you can spar with and you can talk with and learn that way. I have to admit, I haven't heard the word sparring used in that context. So that, no. I don't know if that's my, I don't know if we have a regional difference here or <laughs> my lack of exposure to certain kinds of environments. I don't know. But Maybe it's a Scandinavian thing. I don't know. I, don't know. I think of sparring a- as uh, um, like practicing in... Uh, like in boxing, where yeah. Mm-hmm. But so when you said the word, like that, it brought to mind something adversarial. But as you yeah. unpack it, I'm like, oh, this is you know a trusted partner that you can. In, I think mm-hmm. a sparring partner in sports and in, in boxing is someone that it's like a friend that you can hit, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a certain so, someone that you challenges you. Yes. Yeah. And you have to have trust. Exactly. It, it, I mean, it's a safe place to 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 go outside your comfort zone. Yeah. And that trust is something that yeah has to grow over time. Because I remember when we came together as a team at first, it, it, there really was some doubts and questions about, so what is this going to add for me? Like, why should I be part of this? Right. So it was hard work to, to make sure that people really, you know, yeah got an understanding for, you know, what is your expertise? What is my expertise? What, what are our different backgrounds and how do we complement each other? And how do you add to my work and how can I add to your work? So, so it took a couple of months and, and yeah, it's a lot about meeting each other face to face. So we make an effort to see each other every month, even though we're into, well, Oslo and Stockholm is not far from each other. So it's an hour's flight. You can't, you know, see each other. So we, we do that every month and, and then it's, it is a mix of both you know, professional as well as eating out. Right. We're looping back to what you were saying before about just the overall research community at the company. Yeah. That even within the team, that's how you sort of turned a bunch of individuals into a team was... Yeah. Through spending time together. And yeah, exactly. And then, you know, if you've seen someone, if you've met them, it is easier to reach out uh, online and, and post a question and, and get someone to, you know, then maybe follow up and talk with you or have like, yeah, that kind of communication with. It, yeah. I mean, you're describing a, something that seems at least somewhat parallel to the work itself that, hmm. that 
being in the same space with people and talking to them and whether you're not, you know, you talk before about meals, maybe you're not literally breaking bread with somebody, but you are sharing space with them and that there's things that happen that can, I think can only happen in that environment. And and that's the research, but that's also team building and, you know, establishing a shared culture and a shared set of beliefs. And I think you described going from like what's in it for me to what's in it for us. I'm paraphrasing you, but that kind yeah, of shift. Yeah, but I think, I think you're right there. Yeah. And it, and it is, uh, yeah, it's both, you know, you need to, by supporting your research community, you get a lot back as well. So it goes both ways. So just looking into the future, it's the researcher's future looking question, you know, whether this is about your own personal professional trajectory or about the organization you're in building or the practice in general uh, of research, you know, some number of years in the future, what kind of things which should we or you or your team be heading towards? I think when it comes to my team and our organization, I really think, you know, we're maturing quite well in terms of how well research is established and what we're doing and so on. Uh, But I think the next hurdle for us or for me professionally, what I want to see is that the moment I'm talking a lot about, you know, how can we make sure that product teams uh, understand their audience better and understand the user better and have that first hand experience and now I'm working towards the next phase which is okay how can we get the organization to understand the audience better so in our case Shipstead Media there's a product and tech organization of around 300 people or so and and I will want them to do and understand user research and, and we spend a lot of time training them and coaching them and mentoring them great but there are 2,000 people employees working in Shipstead Media and this includes like the journalists and it includes like salespeople. Uh, that you know sell ads ad space or that work with subscription and it includes customer service and it includes HR even so how can we get them to start doing user research and get them to have that kind of first kind of access because otherwise it's still a silo still the product and tech silo that gets the empathy and gets the understanding but what about the people that create the content on the platform? What about the people that sell it uh, or sell parts of the platform? Like, like for an end user, that's all the same experience. That all goes hand in hand. So all those people need to be involved in it. So that's where I see our next challenge. We have a really cool pilot project coming up in April where in one of our media houses in Bergen, which is in Norway, uh, we're going to do an experiment with this kind of a pilot where in one week we will get around almost half of the employees to do all kinds of user interviews and be part of workshops and so on and to have kind of an intensive week of exposure to their audience and their users and see how that impacts the organization and the product. So it will be, yeah, we'll do research on that pilot as well. Yeah. Like look at it, okay, before, during and after. You know, how do the employees of the Berrien Stiedener, the, the local newspaper there, how do they think it impacts their work, their understanding um, what are the short-term effects, long-term effects, and how can we build on that pilot to see what we can do with it? So wow. that's next. Yeah. That's, so it's not even that far in the future. <laughs> it's quite soon. But then we have to, you know, exp- um, kind of take that to the rest of the organization and all the other product teams and all the other kind of employees. So it be interesting to see how it goes. It's a reimagining of research, as you say, moving from product. Research is a thing that helps product versus research is a thing that serves the organization, the culture. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I think, is that to me feels really big and very future looking. That's real exciting. Yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. Let's hope it goes well. 
I'm <laughs> slightly, sure will. I'm not sure yet how we're going to, you know, synthesize data. And it still needs a lot of work yeah. before April, but uh, we're gearing up for it and it will be, it'll be epic. Yeah. Is there anything else I should have asked you about? I was thinking about before. I People that, you know, want to shift their careers to user research always ask, what should I be reading? What should I be doing? Or where, where do I even start? And there I think... I always recommend them like two, three books that I think can be worth mentioning. I think Erica Hall's uh, Just Enough Research is great, but I also really always buy and, and share your book, Interviewing Users, with people. Thank you. This yeah. is not a paid endorsement. <laughs> no, no, not at all. But I think it's, you know, it's like the fundamental basics of just getting started. And it's a lot about that. You know, it's not so much about which university do I go to, which master program do I follow, which kind of courses do I need to pay a lot of money for? It's more about, you know, reading up on it, trying to get started and trying to get into your everyday work or, or you know, if you're a designer you can be doing it. If you're a product manager you can be doing it. But if you also, if you're working in HR, you know, you can start trying it out, experimenting. You just need to do it a lot to get good at it. And you can come from any kind of background to become a user research really. You just need to get started. What if, uh, what if when you were doing uh, political science research, what if Erica's book had been around then, or my book had been around then? Like, would that have? I realize you didn't know that you needed that. That was a thing that you yeah. were going to go <laughs> learn from. But I'm just thinking of you at the point that you're mm-hmm. you're kind of advising a, a, a hypothetical person. But just going back in time, what did you have to sort of teach you how to? how to learn, how to do the research that you were doing. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, in the social sciences, you that's all you do. You learn, you know, research methodology and you learn to master that. But I think I would have loved to see, you know, both these books and but also in the online, there's so many great resources, articles and so on to show you how it's practically applied in the industry. And it's so different from from academic research and it's so tangible and it's so, you know, you kind of see direct usage, impact, change and so on. I think if I would have seen and known about that, I would have switched earlier on. Then I would not have gone into academic research in the beginning at all. I would not have toyed around with, should I do a PhD or not? No. No, no way. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I think it would have been really inspiring. And I think, you know, for all these people who are in academia, um, it is sometimes hard to know what can I do with my skills? What can I do with my knowledge? But in the industry, there's so much, you know, such a big need for people with these kind of skills uh, and such a big need for that kind of expertise. So I highly recommend. I keep meeting more more people who are hiring PhD uh, and similar level uh, academics to come into into industry and more people in academia that are excited and a little lost, but excited about making the move into into industry yeah. and kind of applying, I don't know, back in my early days that seemed like those were two camps that philosophically didn't trust each other. Yeah. And um, I just, I don't, I don't encounter that attitude anymore. And you no. know, there's just uh, both people from both worlds are looking to embrace each other and, and, and so on. And yeah. um, so that makes me hopeful for just, yeah, the field growing in that way. But you know, what's so funny because like, I feel like I've come, you know, so far from any kind of academic style research and so on. But it was a couple of months ago that one of the designers, you know, I was talking with him about you, how you standardize and how you can get, you know, like frequent research going 
and talking about the research objective. And, and he just said, you know what? You're just so academic. Mm. <laughs> and just, you know, just getting the basics kind of in there. It's still for some people that still feels too academic. And yeah. you think like, oh my, I yeah. need to have, you know, do more, think more about how I share these things or what I say or like is the fundamental basics. You need to have a goal to or an objective for any kind of study. But maybe we should call it something different because it just sounds too, yeah, far-fetched or too kind of highbrow. For someone I'm impressed else. that you took that as as a growth opportunity or a challenge for yourself. Not at the first moment. Okay. I must have been. At first I was just like, what? <laughs> You're kidding me. Yeah. And then I thought a bit about it a bit more and I was like, okay, you know, if I'm getting this kind of feedback, then maybe I need to change and do my own kind of internal, you know, research. If I want them to do their own research, then I need to approach them at their own level and using the words and, and kind of things that they can relate to. Otherwise, it's like, how am I going to convince them otherwise? Well, great. If, do you have any anything else we should cover? Don't think so. Okay. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. This has yeah. been a great conversation. Mm-hmm. I've learned a lot and lots of, lots of ideas and uh, great to, to have the time to chat with you. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for being here for this episode of Dollars to Donuts. Follow the podcast on Twitter and subscribe at Portugal.com slash podcast or iTunes or Spotify or Stitcher or your favorite podcast distribution platform. Also at Portugal.com slash podcast, you can find the transcript and links for this and all episodes. Buy my books from Rosenfeld Media or Amazon. Thanks to Bruce Todd for the Dollars to Donuts theme.